Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with my co-host, Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. Rick, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Dan? Long time no see. It's good to be back in the saddle. It's been a couple weeks here, man. And I got to tell you, a little bird told me you were doing something that I, I just can't, as your friend and your co-host here, I just can't agree with your choice of running with bulls. What, what, what's that all about, buddy? I don't actually run with the bulls, but I was <laughs> on the balcony watching the bulls run beneath me as, and having some churros and chocolate and then dressed in all white with a Pamplona scarf. It was checking off the bucket list. One of those things just, just going down the bucket list. All right, you were there with a mutual friend. I, I wasn't sure if you were running or not, but you were drinking. It sounds like plenty of uh, sangria, so you were probably having a laugh at all the guys getting gored. I don't get that whatsoever. The videos just look so nasty. Whatever that rush is that you think you're going to get, go to a Pearl Jam concert or something and, <laughs> and do a stage dive, man. You know what I mean? Yeah, I am a little bit biased here. Go to, go to London and go not to Pamplona? No. In the mosh pit, it felt a little bit like that, but a bit more safe. All right, man, you and I have a, a ton to get through here because the stock market is rip-roaring. It feels like some of the doomsaying in private tech markets has kind of calmed down just a little bit. We're going to hit all that. We had a great conversation. So after Rick and I are done, stick around. Katie Stanton of Moxie Ventures and I speak with Kevin Wheel. He is the president of satellite company Planet Labs. You're going to want to stick around and hear all about that. All right, Rick, let's get into it here. As I said, it's Tuesday into the close. We have Netflix reporting after the close. The stock is up 5% ripping above 200 bucks for the first time. Remember, this stock in November was $700. So it's 200 right here and what's interesting about this one is that it's the first, you know, I would say major tech company to report and really set the stage a little bit for the main event which will be Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, which all report next week. I'm just curious, you know, being away from your screens, being away from some conversations, I know it was a working vacation, if you will. Did you feel like there was a little bit of a sentiment change being away from New York a little bit? There was. I mean, obviously, New York is the center and you could feel the energy or you could feel the positive or negative vibes from the market just going to a dinner or, or talking to folks. And that's obviously the further you get from New York. And if you go to Europe, People aren't living and dying by earnings results, and therefore you get a different vibe, uh, which also gives you a healthy separation from um, a little bit of Twitter and a little bit of just the day-to-day. -day. So I think that was healthy and maybe came back with new eyes. 
And I also think the sentiment got better. I think we might have seen sometime during the second quarter kind of a troughing out of sentiment. And, you know, all the bad news was out there. People were. Well, hold on. Let me push back. Not all the bad news. I mean, really, when you think about sentiment, it's like, okay, how much worse is the sentiment than the news is going to get? You know what I mean? And one of the things while you were gone that I thought was really interesting, because you've been talking about this, you have this expertise in consumer related names here. Obviously, you also play in the SaaS space. But one of the things that happened early last week was Bill McDermott, the CEO of ServiceNow was on Jim Cramer's show, and he kind of sounded the alarm on a drop-off in enterprise demand for some of their products. And, you know, a lot of SaaS names got absolutely destroyed. And I just mentioned this on a day today where the NASDAQ is up 3%, the S&P is up 2.5%, Microsoft's up less than 2%. So there's some underperformance. There still seems to be a slight trepidation, if you will, because we haven't had too many companies in the public markets on the enterprise side confirm what we've already seen in consumer names. Yeah, well, I think that it's much easier to track transactions, and that has a much shorter arc than SaaS names, which sign annual contracts. And I think you're going to see the same swooning and the same recessionary factors you've seen on the consumer side on the SaaS side, right? I mean, a lot of SaaS companies, they sell their product by the seed, by the month, or by the year. And for the last 10 years, as SaaS has become more mainstream, a lot of SaaS companies are selling into tech and they're selling by the seat and all those companies were growing. So if you're just kind of staying where you are and everything's good in the tech market, so the CFO isn't pushing back on price, you're able to increase price a little bit every year. And just naturally, as your customer base grows in terms of employee count, you sell more software into that employee base. That's all changed. So the softness you're seeing, and we're seeing even as buyers of software from the board perspective is, hey, CFO, be more vigilant and careful about pushing back on price, be more vigilant and careful about what SaaS applications are being used. And although our plan might've been to grow our employee base 20%, we're currently flat. So even the best of the companies that we think can, can hold price and hold our business still aren't going to grow because they don't have additional seats to sell into. So I think that's SaaS's problem now. We haven't seen it play out in the company results, but that's the dynamic which you got to be worried about. A hundred percent. We have not seen it in the company results so far. And, you know, when you think about all of the major tech companies that have signaled that they're slowing hiring or, or cutting hiring or going to be making cuts altogether, and you're also seeing it across large investment banks too, I think that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. And the last thing uh, while you were gone, we had that June jobs number and the unemployment level did not tick up despite the fact that we're seeing lots of companies signal that they're going to be laying people off. So I, I guess, you know, when you think about, you know, SaaS demand, I think it's maybe a one or two quarter lag from some of the other data that we're thinking about here. Let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the private markets. Cause again, you spend most of your time there. You're obviously got, you know, you got irons in the fire as it relates to public markets and you keep a close ear to the wall there. But you know, for me, you know, I'm a public markets guy that happened to speak to a lot of VCs and also private operators here. And it really seemed like, I think you were calling it this bit of a doom loop, if you will. And a lot of 
founders were getting a lot of guidance about kind of really battening down the hatches, making the cuts, do the sorts of things that they need to do to rationalize costs. How has that kind of played itself out over the last kind of month and a half? And, and I guess the last point I'll just mention there is like, again, when you see the NASDAQ rise 10% in a straight line in a couple of weeks, do people kind of say, all right, it's not Armageddon here, or is that just not a barometer that's being focused on too much? There's two parts of that. I'll talk first about the operating side. So as we've talked about over the last year, people thought they were ahead of themselves, then they corrected, and then they took the expense medicine that they thought they should have taken and maybe even right-sized their employee base. And from an operating perspective, the best companies are through that. And they're kind of through that. I was talking to a CEO today. He was feeling lighter that you know the, the company's leaner, it's meaner, it's able to move faster. And the best CEOs are seeing that you know, when you get rid of that extra weight, you're leaner, you're lighter, and you move faster. And they're seeing that on the other side of layoffs, and they're, they're really empowered by that. And so, you know, they're ready in the second half of 22 to play offense. So, you know, I think better companies have taken their medicine and have gotten through a lot of the hard things in the first half of 22. And although they know they've been re-rated from a multiple perspective, they still are confident in just the fundamentals of their business. And therefore, if they're playing the longest game in the room, they know they're going to be able to get to that side. Separately, on the market side, you're starting to see a little bit of interest in the private markets. You're starting to see the beginnings of snips of interest, folks taking testing the waters meetings, folks interested in hearing the stories and meeting with management teams that three or four months ago, you were getting crushed and you didn't want to hear from anybody about anything. We're still seeing, though, some big marks being taken. We're still seeing some huge declines, some performance numbers to the downside. And, you know, we saw it in Tiger Global and there's a whole host of others. I think a lot of people are going to have a terrible Q2. Yeah. I feel like, you know, as a little pressure is released from the public markets, what you might have seen is a lot of these crossover folks anticipating, let's say, redemptions or whatever it was be selling what they could sell into the end of Q2, right? And then obviously taking some of these marks. I've just seen some big ones of late, but I think regular listeners know, I I do not think we're out of the woods yet. And I will say that if you think about the public markets, they've been correcting, especially in high growth, high valuation tech for over a year, right? And the market, the NASDAQ in particular, topped out in late November. But at that point, some of your favorite tech stocks were already down 30, 40%, right? And now we have many that are down much more than that. So I just suspect, and again, not my market here, but the private tech market is going to bottom out after the public tech market does. I mean, that's just my two cents here. But like to your point, there are some green shoots here. You and I were texting last week. I was about ready to go on Fast Money. And this headline crosses the tape that Elliott Management takes a activist stake in Pinterest. Now, this is a name I think you were the first institutional investor in Pinterest, what, over a decade ago or so, a story that you know very well. I'm hitting you right away. When I see Elliot, I know that they try to like kind of get board seats and get rid of CEOs they think are underperforming, all this sort of stuff. And you know, at the end of the day, this is 
is not a company their CEO founder had just left a couple months ago. I think you and I were both remarking there's no debt to speak of. And I think maybe 25% or so of their market cap was in cash. Stock was down 80%. Importantly, a profitable company with 79% gross margins that's just facing massive deceleration in the growth that they had to pull forward from the pandemic. And you look at this thing and you say, well, it's kind of obvious unless we're likely to see another couple really, really bad quarters deceleration. And your thought immediately was what, Rick? My thought immediately was this, this company is significantly undervalued that I might be a little bit of a permable on Pinterest, given the, the deep and long-term relationship I have with Ben and the team there and my holdings, I still hold some as an individual, but I thought the company is undervalued for a long time. If you take out cash, you know they were trading it, I think nine times cash flow and EBITDA for this year. So from a value perspective, it's clearly there. And then in addition to that, bringing in Bill to be the new CEO, who has a deep background in payments and shopping to be able to say, hey, what's the next product leg on the journey for Pinterest? It's how do you get deeper into shopping and make Pinterest as shoppable, even more shoppable than Instagram? Okay, well, you have a half a billion users a month. You're already monetizing them pretty well and driving over a billion dollars of cash flow. True, your monthly users isn't growing very quickly, but if you can monetize them better, drive better margins, and really this looks like you know mid-single-digit EBITDA multiples, it's cheap. It's incredibly cheap with no debt, with excess cash, and it's a great oper- buying opportunity. Whether or not there's some level of activism, it, it's just a great stock to own. It got me thinking, though, Rick, there's got to be a bunch of names in the NASDAQ that are just kind of washed out, that are down 80% or so. The one thing that's interesting about Pinterest, though, is that it is profitable. You know, look at like a Lyft. Lyft has a $3.5 billion enterprise value. They have about half their market cap in cash. They have a billion of debt. You know, this is one where when you think about there's two players here for rideshare in North America, and they're number two. Now, they're a distant number two to Uber. Like, this is one where... When we're thinking about data, like you like to use that expression, the digitization of everything. I mean, you got to think that the data that Lyft drivers, there's got to be something there. Anything on your radar? Any of these names that have just kind of been kind of pounded out and kind of left for dead? Yeah, I'm less bullish on Lyft as I think that that really is a network effect business. I think Uber is the verb in the space. You know, are you going to get an Uber to the party? You know, did you take an Uber here? I haven't heard people use Lyft, at least in New York City, in months. So I'm I'm less worried about Lyft, but I do think that there are some former growth, now value stocks that are really cheap. You know, we talked about Warby Parker. You know, when it went public, it was trading at a much higher multiple than Luxottica as a growth stock. But now after a retreat, they're trading at a lower multiple of Luxottica, although they're growing faster, have higher gross margins, and have some opportunity ahead of them. So I think the buy side is just kind of re-catching up with being whipsawed, having to put their portfolio into triage mode, and then saying, you know, the old thing we've been talking about for over six months now is, you know, where are the babies and where's the bathwater and how do I sort through this in a thoughtful, methodical way? 
Yeah, well, and, I, and I'm going to come back to the one thing that, you know, I've said through my experience, you know, trading through the financial crisis and obviously the post.com uh, phase 20 years ago. I mean, one of the things that you just can't account for sometimes is time. The way some of the stuff has to work itself out is over time. And, you know, I just mentioned NASDAQ up 11%. Great. You know, we've had a bunch of 10% rallies in what is a very well-defined bear market. And before a recession is called, obviously, a lot of the geopolitical issues that caused this kind of surge in inflation this year have not been resolved yet. And we're going to have all of that uncertainty. And again, I'll just go back to the last thing. I think that one thing that the market is not pricing in right now is a tick up in unemployment. And maybe this is just the most bizarre bear market we ever have and the bizarre slowing of the economy that has had a yield curve inversion. The 210 is at its widest it's been in over 10 years or maybe even 20 years ago, inverted 50 basis points is about 20. I mean, there's a near certainty. And, and I don't, again, I'm not Nostradamus here, that our economy is going to be in a recession. Europe's going to be in a recession. So you can get all geeked up. You can play some of these rallies here, but it's not likely to end like this. There's Likely, you know, I, I and, and I think you know this. I've been picking out a bunch of tech stocks and PayPal down eighty percent, Snap down eighty percent, Netflix, Meta, some of these names that I just think are one gap away, one earnings call disaster and guide lower with maybe another 20, 25% gap. And then you kind of say, all right, then how much time is it going to take for these things just to kind of work themselves out? So that's my playbook here. I would have said meta. I would say, you know, the ad companies are challenged, but I also just see from a consumer acquisition perspective, TikTok sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. Snap continuing to be strong on the product side. And although you know, Instagram is is a behemoth. It's probably capping out in terms of DAU and uh, MAU. And I think that the flagship meta or the Facebook logo, whatever you want to call it, is is definitely on the decline. So I think that you know there's going to be the double whammy of probably underperformance in terms of users and then underperformance in terms of monetization for those users. Uh, this may come as a surprise to you, but I think Tesla is likely to be an absolute disaster. And I think that when you think about how good their first quarter was, their Q2 might be that bad. And I think the competition, supply chains, I think Elon Musk in a situation with Twitter, I think Elon Musk is literally melting down before our eyes, sadly, on Twitter and literally on Twitter to be a little meta there that might have confused uh, some here. But I just think that... Of all of the major names, it's still a $750 billion market cap company. It's the only one that has not made a new 52-week low in this period. And something unusual is going on there. But I kind of expect that you know the court just ruled in Delaware that this Twitter Elon Musk thing is going to trial in October a little later than what Twitter was hoping for. They were hoping for September. He was hoping for February. It's happening. And I guess you know if you read the tea leaves here, it sounds like that the judge wants to hear this case and could make Elon buy this company for $44 billion, and we know it's not worth that. We know it's probably worth maybe at best 20 or $25 billion to go private. So to me, I, I think this one, I, it, get the popcorn out, man. I think Tesla is an accident waiting to happen. So what's your call on that then? Where, where does this settle out? By end of the year, who owns Twitter and how much did they pay for it? 
I, I think that the the judge probably rules that he has to buy the company, and I think he probably doesn't buy the company. And I think that this is going to be the beginning of the end of Elon Musk. I really do. Wow. I think this this whole lore of him. I talked to so many really smart people in tech, whether they be operators or investors, public, private, or whatever. Nobody really wants to talk any shit about this guy. It's just kind of the old school Wall Street guys who are really good at figuring out where the fraud is that they have their kind of this guy's number. And again, I know I sound like a tinfoil hat sort of guy, but in 25 years in my career, I've never seen a cult stock or a cult leader of that cult stock not blow up. I'm not telling you he's Bernie Evers or Jeff Skilling or anything like that, but I'm just telling you that this is one of the biggest investment bubbles of our lifetime. And it's just, in my opinion, it's just starting to unravel. And it's starting to unravel because Elon Musk himself. And if he's ruled, if, if, if the judge in Delaware rules that he is in breach of this contract and he has to close it and he doesn't, how the hell does Tesla's board, okay, keep him on their board and as the CEO of the fifth or sixth largest market cap company in the world, I think he's a huge liability to this company. And if you tell me if he's not there and you take out all of his disciples, you know, investors, whether it be institutional or retail, there's probably a three or $400 air pocket in this stock. So I'm on record. I'm not shy about it. I do have a put position. I'm probably going to continue to expire them worthless. I'm going to keep throwing good money after bad, but I've never seen one of these things not blow up in my opinion. So who knows? Let's pivot to another Fugazi. Let's talk a little bit about, let's talk about crypto because this was um, Derek Thompson. Okay. And he is a a prolific writer, I believe for the Atlantic. He um, had a quote tweet of Sam Bankman Freed. You know him, Mm -hmm. the founder of FTX, a crypto exchange here. Who is now supporting the entire crypto ecosystem through loans or investments. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, there's been a number of blow ups, right, of, of some of these schemes, uh, Celsius, there's this uh, Voyager, there was Luna, the Terra thing. And he's he's always listed as kind of the lender of last resort here. And you say to yourself, how has he avoided all the pitfalls of some of this yield farming and all this other stuff where he can kind of backstop all of these other peers that are going the way of the dodo. I'm just curious, like your thoughts here. What's the aura about this guy? He seems to be like a 20-something Warren Buffett crypto genius. Well, I, th- I think he was very early and very aggressive and therefore made a tremendous amount of money. And he therefore has a lot of uh, hodler fans. And he also has, you know, has been able to build out a, a really good team and a really good ecosystem in crypto where he's made billions and billions of dollars building out market making, taking positions in crypto, doing everything you need to do. And because of that, because both of his economic success and his tentacles throughout crypto, he has a lot of fanboys. And then obviously, as a lot of people who, are, who appreciate and even in this part of the cycle need his economic support. So he's been you know, next in that line of uh, above the law or beyond the law or whatever you were saying with Elon. So I think he could wind up being, you know, the big winner in crypto in that he's going to become a consolidator as all this ecosystem is falling apart. You know, the Jay Gould of the crypto infrastructure, if it's worth anything. So I think the key is he's taking a lot of money off the table. He's doubling down to keep the railroad alive. But, you know, are people going to really need the railroad? And that's part of the battle that's waging now of 
clearly they were not bad actors, but terrible actors in the ecosystem who were committing outright fraud. And what does it mean as this goes back and gets cleaned up? What's what's really there? And I, I don't think anybody knows at this point. You're, you're seeing the news come out about Three Arrow. You're seeing the news come out about coins that are falling apart, about lenders who are falling apart with and what that's going to mean from on the other side, a regulatory perspective is all going to be fascinating. But I think we're probably only halfway through the movie here on crypto. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I do think it's interesting that another very early successful investor in the space is Mike Novogratz, macro yep. trader, who you know founded Galaxy Digital, which is a digital assets like Merchant Bank. And he was speaking to Bloomberg, I think, at a digital assets conference today on Tuesday. And he said the recent turbulence in the cryptocurrency industry is a full-fledged credit crisis and acknowledged that he was darn wrong about the magnitude of the leverage in the system and his Luna tattoo. No, he didn't say that, but that is an accident waiting to happen. I'm sure he's going to have to have that thing cleaned up. But he did say what I don't think people expected was the magnitude of losses that would show up in professional institutions, balance sheets, and that caused the daisy chain of events. And I thought that was interesting. And the Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, who runs Skybridge funds, you know, he had a fund that just kind of stopped redemptions for uh, one of their funds that has, I don't know, you think he said 25% of their assets exposed to crypto. So the point, I mean, this is the point that I think Novogratz was making that, you know, there was exposure in lots of institutional portfolios with leverage that people were just not acknowledging. There was a counterparty risk that they couldn't have imagined. Some of the counterparties they were dealing with were either committing fraud or, or lending it was almost the producers that they were lending the same assets against, you know, five different loans, thinking the market was only going to go up. And, you know, little did they know as this thing starts to unwind that the leverage will come after them. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of those guys are trying to disappear out. You know, what's interesting is that, you know, Danny Moses, who, you know, is my co-host with Guy Adami on, on the tape podcast that drops Fridays, check it out in the podcast stores. People, Danny's been calling this out with these stable coins for over a year. If there's, legitimate concerns about what the collateral is for these coins, right? And the sort of leverage that a lot of these issuers are using to kind of get the yep. yield, right? Well, the guaranteed yield. If you're guaranteeing a 15% yield, what are you doing to do that? And That's you're, right. Obviously, you're putting a capital structure on top of that compounding leverage, which gets you into a terrible spot. But but it was really hard, you know, Rick, on, on Fast Money or on CNBC in general that I saw or conversations that I had or on our podcast to get any what I think are very legitimate players in the crypto space to kind of acknowledge the, this, the thing that Novo is acknowledging right now, you know. So, uh, again, I just think that to your point, I think you said we're midway in this movie. Go take a break. Come back because the things are about to get exciting. I want to go back to this Derek Thompson tweet really quickly because he's quote tweeting Sam Bankman-Fried's. So, so Freed had a tweet storm. I think they still call it that. They still do. That's what the kids are calling. That's that's what the kids are calling. It, it was number. It was the thirty eighth tweet. Um, it said, "Great products. Builders have to focus on building great products, not on monetization of the core product." So then Derek Thompson said, I think crypto arrived at a particular moment in the industrial cycle when ad tech, cloud, et cetera, were matured and VCs were looking for alpha and new frontiers. This inverted the typical product cycle by creating huge monetization opportunities before any great products were built. Talk to me a little bit about this, because I'm sure you at First Mark have seen hundreds of crypto products over the last, let's call it 10 years or so, and you've only invested in a handful. That's very true. And even those are 
some of those which we think are, are some of the best names in crypto are still struggling now as they're struggling for liquidity and counterparty risk and what does this mean but i think the the, the key part which Derek hits on at the end is huge monetization opportunities before anything happens and it's a little bit of a perfect storm if we think about what did covid mean and what did all the stimulus checks mean and what did forcing people to sit at home in front of their laptop all day mean it meant that there was you know oversimplifying it just too much liquidity in the market and it forced people to go try and find things to get rich quick on and everybody kind of coalesced around crypto and it became a thing and if some was good more is better your next door neighbor bought it a thousand and now you know now it's four thousand so i'm going to get in and i'm going to double down i'm going to borrow to buy more and this is going to be my retirement fund because this isn't going to be like last time that crypto is so different and we've also all heard horror stories of people putting their retirement savings into crypto because they wanted to retire earlier and they thought it was an easy way to get rich quick. And I think one of the key things that we've all learned is there's no easy way to get rich quick. There's a fundamental risk return, which exists in any product. So the ability to monetize early was the tremendous Achilles heel. And then sadly, the ability to, for certain VCs to monetize by selling tokens to retail in an unregulated environment was really the cardinal sin of some was good, more was better, that you didn't have to have a product that created value or you didn't even have to have a product in a lot of these cases to be able to take tokens, which are basically unregulated securities, and sell them to retail. So you're effectively kind of doing uh, the IPO before you, before you actually had any revenue. And it was, a, it was a way to backdoor into retail demand at a high price and, and make a lot of money because crypto was going crazy. And I think that's probably one of the things the regulators are gonna close because it, it wound up, it's gonna wind up being really bad for a lot of people and probably circumventing a lot of things, including um, consumer protection and laws. Yeah, well, I guess like every kind of bull cycle where you see the overexuberance at the tail end, I mean, really, we saw it into, you know, the end of Q1 2021 SPAC issuance was equal to or greater than that of the prior 10 years combined. We saw, you know, what was going on with NFTs. We saw, you know, all the crypto tokens and secondary sales. Um, and, you know, you think about all these NASDAQ stocks that are down 60, 70, 80%. You know, I'm looking at my screens right now. I see Shopify down 76%. I see Snap down 70%. This is just on the year. Lyft down 70%. Netflix down 70%. I mean, these are companies with products that we use every single day. So you don't even think about being a bag holder there. You are buying into this kind of new world order about how we're all going to operate. I guess at this point, we'd all much rather by any of those names with a longer term time horizon than some Fugazi tokens here. All right, lastly, Rick, Guy and I are going to speak with Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene is a mainstay on Fast Money. He's a great tech analyst and also a VC. That's going to drop on Friday. We're going to do a little preview of Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, and Meta, which I'll report next week. You just mentioned that you're most worried um, about Meta as far as the outlook they're going to give. I'll just say this. It's really interesting. You know, Apple, you know, which is up 2.5% today, is only down about 15% on the year. Just think about that. So when you think about the fact that we're in this 
bear market. We have all of this uncertainty about, you know, inflationary pressures all over the world. People are, you know, kind of convinced that we're in a recession. I certainly am. And that, again, is not the end of the world that we have a recession. It's kind of the natural order of kind of economic cycles here. But what that means, I guess, for, um, you know, investor interest is really the issue. But just curious your thought, you know, when you think about those names, they're obviously not all the same. Let's just focus on, you know, the four big ones, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Do you think that these will also be the leaders on the way out of this? And therefore, when you think about, there's no company that has actually, even with the pandemic and the pull forward, has demonstrated their inability to kind of disintermediate any of those. You know what I mean? So are they likely to show good relative strength, I guess is my question. We, we, we haven't seen who the, you know, there's usually the new guard who's who's going to overtake it, you know, who's, is the, the Google that's going to overtake the AOLs and the Yahoo's. And you're seeing something that has just incredible metrics and just a, a force of nature in the market. We just had our partners offsite at First Market. We talked a little bit about what are we seeing that is that next generation force of nature. And, you know, I think Stripe is in the payment system. There's a couple of companies, but nothing that we really see is going to unseat a lot of the fangs. They all have their separate effects. I think, as we talked about before, Meta is the most exposed. I think if you if you look at either other networks, other social networks like Snap, if you look at TikTok, that's just going to suck out a lot of that demand. You're going to see uh, Facebook is probably the one that's most at risk. And I think Apple, just given their ecosystem and their brand, as well as Microsoft's ability to be deep on the enterprise infrastructure software all the way through the consumer, on their gaming side, especially with the acquisition of Activision, where it looks like it's going to go through, I think they're in a in a really amazing spot. I think that they're they're built to last, and part of the reason they haven't gone down is they 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 also still seem relatively cheap. Yeah, I'll just say this about Meta, and this might be a bit contrarian. I think it's probably one gap away. Maybe you see this thing down somewhere between its 2019 low, which is like 125, and its 2020 low, which is about 137. One more gap, one more guide. This is a company that has 3 billion monthly active users, $125 billion revenue base, 79% gross margins, and they are in the process of a major pivot away from declining, like you just kind of labeled them, the main page and some of the other services as kind of melting ice cubes. I think about things like WhatsApp and their ability to monetize those, go back to maybe digital payments and all this sort of stuff. And, And I basically say, this thing south of 150, I think, is a layup longer term because there's never been a company in the history of the world that's been able to have 30% of the population on their platform and being able to be monetized. They should have been, to your point, the super app, right? You know, they, like they, what you see in China, the concept of the super app, you live in that app, you message in that app, you share with your friends, and you buy your car insurance all in that one app. And Facebook, uh, probably because of regulatory scrutiny, hasn't pulled that together as quickly, but they were the shot. And I don't know if if things are starting to unfurl too quickly for them to pull that back together. Because if you know if Facebook logo tried to reach out to you and sell you car insurance today, you would unsubscribe immediately or kill your profile. 
One more gap, Rick. Mind it, okay? Mind the gap. Because Mind I, the gap. Think, I think PayPal has one more gap. I think Snap has one more gap. I think Meta has one more gap. I think- and then, then you're all in? No, I, I. to be honest with you, I'll just say one last thing here. We got to get out of here, okay? I just say that if you think about those names, if you can get them down 70, 80% with the management they have, the install base they have, the revenue base they have, all that stuff. Let's assume that there's no one nipping at their heels. Forget TikTok right now. I think there's a good chance that TikTok has uh, a lot of regulatory scrutiny over here at some time in the next few years um i think that this is the probably the best way to get sort of vc returns in the public markets over the next five years might be scooping up some of these names down 80 percent. i agree I, I completely agree that the best companies are going to double and triple from here yeah all right man well listen i appreciate it. it was great to have you back in new york city and catch up here let's do it irl very soon um everyone next week next week we have a special guest oh we're sitting down with josh wolf i can't wait for that lux capital that'll be great we'll be in new york city and talking to another great thinker yeah we're gonna get our tesla elon on he's got lots to say right there i don't know it'll be tough to, it'll be tough to protect him from the two of you All right, so when we come back, stick around. Katie Stanton and I speak with the president of Planet Labs, Kevin Wheel. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Kevin Wheel is the president of product and business at the satellite imaging company Planet, which he joined in April of 2021. Prior to that, Kevin was the vice president of product for Novi, Facebook's digital wallet project, and the co-founder of Facebook's DM digital currency. He also served as the vice president of product at Instagram and was Twitter's senior vice president of product for nearly seven years. I'm here with Katie Stanton, my co-host, and Kevin Wheel. He is the president of Planet Labs, a product and business. Kevin, welcome to OK Computer. Thank you so much for having me. So first things first, Katie, since you and I have met, we've done a lot of pods together. We've done a lot of dinners together. We've done a lot of COVID together. But I will tell you this, that you, for some reason, up the ante. When we have dinners together, I, I kind of bring dumb people and you bring really smart people. And you didn't even give me a heads up. When we had dinner in Miami in April, I think it was, you said you're going to bring an old friend of yours, used to work at Twitter, and then you bring literally like a rocket scientist to the dinner, right? Tell me a little bit about your history with Kevin. We got to get into what he's doing at Planet Lab. So it is a life lesson for me that you always want to be the dumbest person in the room because you always learn. And it was one of those lucky opportunities for me when I was at Twitter. And Kevin was one of the first persons I met. And I remember vividly meeting you, Kevin. I forget what floor we were on, but you were an IC product manager. And you had talked about your prior job at Cool Iris. And we had a few friends in common. And I remember walking away like, 
man, that guy is smart. He can like download my brain just looking at me. And in fact, I think your kids carry that certain genetics. I remember holding your firstborn Matthew thinking the same thing. But anyway, so we met at Twitter and it was just really such a honor and a great learning opportunity for me to see Kevin grow from this individual contributor of building product to basically leading the entire product organization. And we had many ups and maybe a few downs together in the in Twitter universe as basically every Twitter employee has. <laughs> but I'm really grateful that you could come here today and share more about your story. Yeah. And I, I learned so much from you over the years as well. I'm, I'm grateful for all the time that we got together and that we are continuing to be friends. I'll just say for folks that are listening, that restaurant that we met at in April, as they talk about me potentially being smart, I'm the one that showed up to that restaurant in shorts. There's a restaurant that did not allow shorts. And the restaurant gave me some pants and then got mad at me when I changed into those pants in front of the rest of their guests. I don't know about smart, but we'll go from there. <laughs> they did not know what they were dealing with. Well, here's the deal. So I was reading up on you a little bit after we met here, and I was reading an article in CNBC. They called you a renowned product guru. This is when you left Facebook to join Planet Labs. So talk to us a little bit about, because this quote that I guess you tweeted this when you made the announcement you were leaving Facebook. You said, I'm joining Planet because the more I learned about it, the more I found myself unable to think about anything else. Planet is at the intersection of so many of my passions. So like we said, you spent a lot of time at some of these consumer social apps running product. How did you find yourself on a mission like this at Planet, which seems a little different than getting people hooked on likes and the like there at Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, so if you go back far enough, I was actually a physics grad student. I was studying particle physics. So you know, there's some connection and I, I'm still a math and physics nerd. I read math books in my spare time. My wife makes fun of me endlessly for it. But actually it's a Twitter connection because it was Adam Bain who connected me to Will Marshall, who's the CEO and founder of Planet. I wasn't looking. I was happy doing what I was doing, working on the crypto project at Facebook. And Adam came and just said, you have to meet this guy, Will Marshall from Planet. Adam was the CRO and then ultimately COO at Twitter. He's been a mentor and a friend of mine, good friend of Katie's as well. And for me, it was like, okay, you have an opportunity to go talk physics and satellites and sustainability with like an ex-NASA rocket scientist. Sure, sign me up. So I did. And the more I learned about Planet, the more I was just like, I have to work here. I'm a big believer in following your gut and working on what really excites you. I'd been kind of wanting to come back more towards science in my work because I hadn't really had that in the other jobs that I had. And Planet is this amazing mix of science, climate, sustainability, geopolitics. I found myself waking up in the morning thinking about Planet. And if you do that too many mornings in a row, it's time to make the call. You should just go work on it, you know? That's awesome. I mean, Adam Bain is literally behind every major move in Silicon Valley, I think. I mean, he is such a change maker. So that's an amazing connection. Well, let's take a step back here. Can you just give our listener a little bit of a background on the mission of Planet and what they do? And I, obviously, you and I, when we spoke with Katie at that dinner, it was pretty fascinating. It was a great dinner conversation that I was just fascinated with it because when you think about space and you think about satellites, you think about big, big problems, but you guys are a startup and you're doing this in a manner where it's kind of turning the whole satellite business upside down for at least the way that I can think about it, just the size in which you're doing it and the designs that you have. You have about 200 satellites in space right now? More than 200. We've launched something like 450 or 500 into space over the course of the company. It is the coolest origin story I've ever heard. Let me start there. So the founders, Will and Robbie and Chris, were at NASA and they were watching NASA and basically everybody else in the space industry 
launched these school bus sized $800 million satellites that took many, many years to build. And they were like, man, there's got to be a better way. And so they kind of skunk works this project and they literally launched an Android phone into space. So they strapped a solar panel to the back of an Android phone, stuck it on a rocket, launched it into space. And when it popped out, it was orbiting Earth. And with its phone camera, it took pictures of Earth. And with its little radio, your normal radio in a phone, was able to send those images back down to Earth to one of the ground stations. Totally off the shelf parts. And they were just like, there is a better way to do it. We just proved it. And so that was the genesis of Planet. They went off and they started building satellites a completely different way. So our satellites are, rather than being school bus sized and $800 million and taking years, our satellites are the size of a shoebox. I mean, they literally weigh five or six kilograms and they use a lot of off the shelf components, which means we keep up with Moore's law. We can iterate as fast as the technology world iterates on our satellites. We've upgraded them like 18 times over the course of the last five years, which is just dramatically different than the rest of the industry. And the fact that you have tiny satellites that are relatively cheap means that you can launch lots of them into space. And if you can launch lots of them into space, then you can image the entire Earth every day, which is what we do and nobody else does. So our 200 plus satellites are going around the world, north to south, basically, while the world spins west to east. And they effectively line scan the planet every day at about three to four meter resolution. And so to think about that, think about a square like 10 feet on a side. That turns into one pixel in the resulting image. And we have that over the entire landmass of the Earth every single day. And now I'm smaller than a 10 foot square. You're smaller than a 10 foot square. So we can't distinguish individual people. We can't read your newspaper. We can't read license plates. But what we can see is how the Earth is changing and how humans are shaping it on a day-to-day basis. So whether you're talking like agriculture, border management, mining, maritime, floods, insurance, commodities, finance, we can see that and see how it's changing on a daily basis. And the interesting thing, we've talked a bunch about the satellites here, but it's ultimately a recurring revenue SaaS business. So we have over 800 customers, partners, governments all over the world who purchase the data. The analog of like the per seat model in SaaS is that we charge per square kilometer, but they're typically yearly, multi-yearly contracts. So it's just this fascinating business. It's like a normal SaaS business, except our data centers are in space. That's fascinating, especially the origin story of just kind of shooting their own rockets. I assume they didn't have regulatory approval. They just kind of did it and then proved it. They went on an existing rocket, but they had this payload in there that I think was a little bit skunk works. I've heard they got into a little bit of trouble. So <laughs> I don't want to rat anyone out. So we'll move on. And that intersection with geopolitical issues. Can you talk to us a little bit about that when you're selling to governments? How would you face all said? And what if the Ukrainian government's like, yes, I would love to get this data. And the Russian government was like, yeah, we'd love to get this data too. Can you talk through some of those interesting issues a little bit? Yeah, so we're unique, I think, among most of the companies in our industry in that we have both a commercial and a government business. Most satellite companies that you see are primarily government, and we're pretty close to 50-50. And our government business is split between civil government and defense and intelligence. But we're really proud, and I'm really proud, to serve the government, to serve the U.S. government and allied governments, because it's really important. I mean, it's a dangerous world out there. We have a strong belief at Planet. Our theory of change is that transparency actually creates more peace and security. If more people understand what's going on around the world, 
more nations can see what's actually changing on a daily basis, then that will lead to ultimately better outcomes, more peace. And there are a bunch of examples of this. So, I mean, I guess I'll say before I jump into examples, we also have a very strong ethics process at this company that I really respect that has been in place, honestly, since before we even had data to sell. It was just something that Robbie and Will and the early employees of the company felt incredibly strongly about. And so, for example, we are not in Russia at all. We've completely divested any of our relationships there. Basically, any employee can sort of call stop the line. And we'll go through an ethics process that often involves us referencing NGOs, multilateral organizations, third parties that are experts on whatever the particular ethical subject is. So it's a process that I really respect. So we're working with Ukraine MOD and with other allied governments on the ground to help Ukraine preserve its sovereignty. And that's really important. But the interesting thing about Planet, I mentioned it's government and it's commercial. The other thing that's coming out of Ukraine that will be kind of the second order effect is they're going to have major food crises around the world. There are going to be wheat shortages because they were the fifth largest exporter of wheat in the world. And so we're working with a bunch of NGOs, multilateral organizations. NASA's written about this actually using planet data to understand what's going on with crops. You can understand a lot about agriculture from space. And so knowing as much as you can about what's happening with what crops are being planted, where, how, what's the yield looking like, and how is that going to get to other countries can help us get ahead of that. We're working with third parties to evaluate things like, are there war crimes being committed? Looking at civilian damages, and you can look at day on day on day and look at what's happening and where and who's saying what and combine that with other forms of data, TikTok, Twitter, social media, Telegram, and you can start to get a really accurate picture of what's happening on the ground. And again, transparency here and shared truth is really important. So, Kevin, you just mentioned this ethics board that you created and really is focused, obviously, on the data that's collected by your satellites. And when you think about just your time at Instagram, at Facebook, at Twitter, and how trust and safety and ethics really kind of protecting the data that's collected on the platform, so important here. We've obviously learned a lot of lessons. I'm just curious how you guys think about just being really vigilant about the data that's collected by your satellites, obviously not being co-opted by nation states. Anything that we do, we think long and hard about the implications of it and try to make sure that this is all in service of good. If you look at Western competitors, if you look at China, they have a burgeoning space industry. And for sure, the things that we're looking at doing, they're thinking about as well. But there's a really interesting angle to this geopolitically where at least my belief, and I think many share it, that transparency it's a much more kind of Western way of thinking about the world, right? If you're China, transparency is not your friend. And so the advent of space and the increasing amount of technology and ability we have to shine a light on what's happening and what's changing all over the world on a daily basis is very much in line and I think benefits the Western philosophy and way of thinking, way of life. And so more of it, in my opinion, is going to do a lot more good than bad. Yeah, you also touched on the intersection of climate protection. And I just saw a tweet a few seconds ago that said the UK government has shut down the runway at Heathrow because of record setting temperatures, which is insanely depressing. And I imagine you're seeing a lot of this real-time data come through and giving us more insights on how we can both help adapt to climate change and mitigate climate change. And wondered if you can share more examples of that. You're also on the board of the Nature Conservancy, which I want to talk about later. So we'd love to hear, yeah, more examples of how planet data is being used to help save our planet. 
what Planet produces is ground truth for the world, right? And you, you can't manage what you can't measure. So if you want to understand how the world is changing, how we're shaping it, and then you want to start doing things to mitigate that, you've got to understand if they're having an impact. And so fundamentally, we believe that our data set is a key part of understanding how the world is changing and how we are changing it. We're partnering with customers and partners around the world to make that real. So one thing we did is we worked with the Norwegian government and produced an open data set, so a public good for the world of all of the world's tropical forests between 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south latitude. So it's at nicfi.org, N-I-C-F-I.org. And any researcher anywhere in the world, any member of any one of those governments can come in and understand whether it's looking at deforestation, whether it's looking at the economics of forest regions, understanding permitting and where there's illegal deforestation. Like It's an open data set. And we're seeing thousands of people using it to improve their lives on a daily basis and improve the health of our planet. I'll give you one more quick example that I think is really interesting, and it gets also at this transparency notion. We worked with Paul Allen's foundation to do a similar thing, but for the map of the world's corals. So basically every piece of coral in the world, we mapped all of them, and it's up at allencoralatlas.org. And after having done that, something like five or 10 different countries protected their coral regions. And it's not that they didn't know they were there before. They totally knew they were there but the rest of the world didn't know they were there. And so having this transparency creates a sense of shared accountability that is actually leading to climate action. And we hope to be a driver of a lot more of that. That's incredible. And one quick note for our listeners, it's nicfee.no, because nicfee.org, which I went to, is the National Institute of Certified Floor Covering Inspectors. <laughs> also a very important organization, nicfee.no. Okay, I should definitely remember that going forward. Kevin, talk to us a little bit about, you were going back to how Planet started here. And I, I read an article in Axios that last year there was like $47 billion in VC capital that's found its way into space startups here. And I'm just curious, what is the reliance on private capital versus working with, let's say, a NASA or something like that to kind of get off the ground here? I'm just curious. I know that slowed down a bit, at least some of the data so far in the first half of 2022. We know the Bezos and the Branson and we hear all about that stuff. Is that important for the growth of this industry on like a private level? I imagine funding in about every industry is slowing down right now, but I think it's really important. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but one of the reasons that I was excited to join Planet is I think this next decade is the decade where space becomes a part of everyone's lives. We're already seeing it from the launch front, Elon and SpaceX. They land another rocket. It probably happened this morning. And like, we don't even think about it, right? I mean, it still gives me goosebumps when I watch. It's unbelievable. But it's become so normal. And they're bringing costs down, they're making it easier to get more into space. And I think it's fundamentally important. First of all, there are companies like Planet that are using space to help life here on Earth. And that has to be our first priority. And then you think about using space to go and do more advanced things, you're manufacturing things you can't manufacture on the planet, you're thinking about going to Mars, I think it's fundamentally important. So I sure hope that funding continues. I think the best companies as in any industry, the best companies are going to merit that funding. It's an area that it's harder to build a space company than it is to build a SaaS business, probably. It takes a little bit more money to build satellites, but it's absolutely worth it. Okay, Kevin, so we have one last question for you before we move on to a few other topics. 
if you could snap your fingers, what would you want people to know about the industry? It's not an industry that we really learned too much about, and now you're at the forefront. What would you tell us? Fundamentally, I would just want people to be aware of everything that we can do. Like, I don't think most people have a sense that there are satellites going around the world every single day, imaging the entire Earth every single day, and that that information can tell us so much about what's going on and what's changing in our world that's relevant to everything from like agriculture and growing more food to insurance and finance and defense and civil government. I just think fundamentally awareness is the thing that we're lacking because this data set is brand new. It's a new capability for humanity. And so few people know about it. They see space and they think rockets versus what space can do for us here on Earth. It's interesting just putting my fast money hat on. That's kind of the CNBC through like the public market lens here. And I see the excitement that you have and the sort of people that are being drawn to space. Obviously, Elon and Branson and Bezos, they catch a lot of the big headlines, but there's a lot of capital going there. And there's genius people like you going to fix these big problems going forward. Now, all that being said, Kevin, it looks like you guys all left a big mess here in social media land in the public markets here, because I'm looking at my fact set in my Bloomberg here, and I see Facebook, Meta, down 50% on the year, down more from its all-time highs. I see Snap down nearly 80% from its all-time highs. So Twitter would be down 80% if it wasn't for Musk bid for it. No, that's just a fact, but it's down about 60% or so. And when I look at this sort of devastation, and these are companies that are, other than Twitter, operating fairly well, I think, in a difficult environment. Now, we may get some more data about that when they report their Q2 and they guide for the back half of the year. I'm just curious, now that you're over there, you're focused on much bigger problems here. What's your take about what's going on, at least in some of these public social names? Because this is the sort of devastation that if you were around 20 years ago, you remember seeing some of the biggest tech stocks of that era being down from their all-time highs. I'm just curious, what's your take on that? And let's talk about Meta a little bit here. Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, so much of it is driven by consumers. And my belief, and I'm biased, of course, every single person that I worked with at Twitter, every single person that I worked with at Instagram and on the crypto side, everyone's trying to do the right thing for the user. And we get caught up talking about free speech this, and these are important issues. I don't want to underplay them. But at the end of the day, these products allow you to connect with people all over the world that you never would have. They help families stay together when they're far apart physically. And I think as long as that's still fundamentally what they're being used for, and it still matters in people's lives, stock market's going to go up, down, right, left, and center. But if the products are important in people's lives, that's what matters. Well, it's just fascinating. When I look at like a meta, for instance, it's got a $450 billion market cap. It was about to be a trillion dollars six or seven months ago, a company that's going to maybe do $125 billion in sales with a 79% gross margin and then $3 billion monthly active users. So like a third of the planet. All right. So you say to yourself now, Here's a stock that's trading at 14 times earnings. So for some reason, public market investors are basically, they've just moved on. And it's just pretty fascinating. So I'm curious, what are some of your thoughts? Because you were working on some really cool projects. You're working on the digital wallet. Novi, you were working on DM. It sounds like you were a co-founder of that product, working for a guy that's also thought to be a genius, David Marcus, former CEO right, of PayPal. And it seemed like 
the stuff that you were working on was the path forward. It was how Facebook was going to go into this web, whatever that comes after 2.0. And I'm just curious how you think about that now going forward, because Zuckerberg's clearly stated that this is going to be a different company, whatever the metaverse is. Curious your thoughts on that, because they seem to like left the digital currency stuff behind, but I have to assume they're going to be circling back to it. So I loved my time working on our digital currency efforts. It was a really big mission. The starting point for us was it's really crazy expensive to send money. It's hard. It's regressive, right? It costs more the less money you have. It often puts people in physical danger. From every dimension you look at it, and the more that you learn about it, the worse it gets. And there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to send money as easily, as cheaply, as quickly as you send a text message. And being Facebook, having Messenger and WhatsApp, which are the apps that are connecting exact kind of people that you would want to send money to from every corner of the world to every other, it just felt like a huge opportunity to improve the state of the planet, frankly. And we were trying to do it in an open way. So you also would never have to use Messenger or WhatsApp if you didn't want to use a Facebook product to get value out of this crypto thing. And obviously it didn't work and that could be its own podcast unto itself. But I will say the thing that I respect a lot about Mark is when he bets, he bets big. So he gave us a ton of room to run and we had a lot of amazing people working on this project. You see it now in all of the AR, VR stuff. The company is putting billions and billions of dollars into a bet and a lot of people think he's crazy and we'll learn over five to 10 years whether he's right, but he's not going halfway. He's betting big. And Katie, when I think back to our time at Twitter, this is criticism for me, not criticism for anybody else at the company. But like, I don't think we took enough big bets. And when we did take a bet, we kind of would go halfway. And one of the things I really learned from Instagram and from my time at Facebook was you make a bet, it doesn't always bear out in three or six months, but you stick with it. And that's when you see the returns. So I think it's really going to be interesting to watch. I think that's a cultural thing. That's not on you. I think that was a cultural thing to Twitter that it was hard to make these big bets and changes. And that stems from, I think, a lot of the early days, but it is what it is. And we could talk about Twitter, I think, for hours, but we won't. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> well, you guys could tune into Fast Money at five o'clock today. We'll be talking about that. No, but the fascinating thing about that is when you think about Twitter and you think about Snap, these are small businesses now. They're tiny businesses. And so it's just when you think of the scale in which Facebook or Meta is operating on, I really love to hear people who worked at that company say the things that you did because he's going all in. He's not going to fail. And it's kind of like Reed Hastings, who's pivoted a couple times over the last 20 years and some other very successful tech execs who've operated in very difficult environments and changing and fast changing times, I guess. Yeah. There's the whole thing about wartime CEO, peacetime CEO. Mark is the single best person I've ever encountered at turning peacetime into wartime. And I, I say that with a huge degree of respect. I mean, that as a positive thing. Even when everything was going great at Facebook and up and to the right, there was Mark would find an area where Facebook wasn't performing up to his standards or where something wasn't happening or where he felt like we were missing a trend and would marshal people and rally everybody around it. I mean, Facebook executes really, really well, especially for a big company. So now it really is wartime and it'll be fascinating to watch. But I think there are a few people who know how to to execute that playbook as well as Mark. Sounds like Mark needs a space company too. So maybe he should call you. <laughs> maybe a climate company. Yeah, there you go. 
you're on a number of really impressive boards in addition to your day job and being a super dad and running ultra marathons. So I think you're on the Nature Conservancy board, Strava's board and Black Product Managers board. So quick question for any startup founders out there, what advice would you give those founders who are looking to create their boards? What kinds of people or what kinds of attributes should they be looking for? I think the best thing is to bring people on who are going to push you and challenge you. You're the CEO, you run the company, but your board's there to help refine your thinking and challenge it and make you better. So find the areas where you're weak and look to complement yourself and find people that you also really can build a good relationship with because you don't just leave a board overnight. These are long commitments. You're getting in together for a long period of time. So it's sort of a unique combination of someone who's going to push and challenge you and somebody who you're going to have a strong enough relationship where you're going to want them to push and challenge you. And I've fortunately been able to find a handful of organizations where I know for myself, I'm learning every bit as much and probably far more than they're learning from me. So I just feel fortunate to be involved. Well, Kevin, they're lucky to have you. We were lucky to have you join us on OK Computer today. Katie, thanks for the intro to Kevin and uh, hope you come back and we'll talk all about those internet stocks. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Kevin. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.